Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for being with us. And my thanks to Jake Thrupp for another outstanding performance last night. As I said to you before, I love giving young people a go. They can only improve. We need them everywhere. With good values, a good mind, willing to do homework, capable of articulating what the bulk of Australians are about. And I know Jake did that last night. We are too preoccupied giving media space to minorities. If I might just inject a note here about young people, may I be forgiven for saying to the Australian rugby coach, Dave Rennie, when you're picking your team against the All Blacks next week, give the young ones a go. Put McDermott at halfback so that he can stop kicking the ball away. And at number 10, don't tell me you're going to bring back a 33-year-old when there are two young blokes playing for New South Wales, Tane Edmed and Ben Donaldson. Dave Rennie, give the young blokes a go. They won't let you down. Well, that said, the troubles mount for Albo. They talk about cost of living relief, but there's none. Now someone on an $800,000 mortgage will pay another $242 a month. That means for the person on $800,000, the repayments have now gone up by $1,000 a month. Part of the cost of living relief, says the government, is to reduce the co-payment on pharmaceutical benefits scheme scripts. Don't be fooled. The change from $42.50 to $30 won't kick in until the new year. And the government's signature childcare subsidy expansion won't begin until mid next year. What will I do about the 22.1 cents a litre reduction in the petrol excise that ends on September 28? Come on, Albo, governing is more than rhetoric. The unions are now saying that workplace laws should be amended to allow workers to hit major companies with legal strikes a multi-employer bargaining system. Basically, workers with the power to simultaneously strike across major companies in one sector. In other words, a strike in an aged care facility in the suburbs of Melbourne, they go on strike at all aged care facilities across Australia. I'll have more to say about the looming dogfight over industrial relations, but the unions are saying behind the scenes, Albo, we backed you. Albo, we funded you. Now's the time for the payback. And bugger the employer, there's only one catch though. You can't have a profitable employee without a profitable employer. And I noticed headlines today of a radical plan with a grand vision to have four new performance halls built in Sydney in place of the Domain car park. The biggest cultural reimagining, we're told, of Sydney since the Opera House opened 50 years ago. Well, let me say this. To get to that same Opera House from all over the world, people have to drive down Macquarie Street. It is an absolute disgrace, Macquarie Street, Sydney, worse than a goat track. You'll either puncture your tyre or break your back axle if you don't take care. Well, some of these useless bureaucratic buffoons fix it up. Anyway, plenty on tonight. Shortly, I'll have something critical to say about our new Prime Minister. And we will go to Britain to talk, about, to, talk to David Maddox about theirs. It's a full dance card tonight. Stay with me. You're on ADH and I'm Alan Jones. I'm about to say something to which I have given a lot of thought. Well, I give a lot of thought to everything, but this in particular. I say it reluctantly, but it must be said. Yes, Prime Minister Albanese has come from the other side of the tracks to become Prime Minister. He has, as I've said often, spoken in unifying language. He looks good, brand new suits, nice shirt and tie, all of which is fine. But what is underneath all of that? I spoke to the brother on Monday night, didn't I, of Julian Assange, there's not been a squeak out of the Albanese government, yet the same Anthony Albanese as opposition leader told his Labor caucus in February 2021, last year, that enough is enough, and he, quote, can't see what's served by keeping Mr Assange incarcerated. He's not acted on any of those sentiments. But what's worse, I understand all ministers in the Albanese government have been told not to meet with the Assange team, only with Attorney General Dreyfus, and that's a non-meeting only with his staff. This goes to the credibility of the Prime Minister. Can he be believed? Let me go back a bit. Back in 2019, there was a lot of debate about whether the media should be able to lawfully report on matters of public interest without fear or favour. 
There is legislation, the National Security Legislation Amendment, Espionage and Foreign Interference Act, which creates provisions and defences which include a public interest defence that came into force in December 2018. This brings into focus the role of whistleblowers, not just Julian Assange. In fact, the accepted definition of a whistleblower is that the disclosures he or she makes are in the public interest. What is the consequence of being a whistleblower in spite of all the so-called protections because the whistleblower is acting in the public interest? Well, there's an Australian listening to me tonight, I'm naming him, Alan Kessing, who's a criminal because he was convicted and given a nine months suspended sentence in 2007 for allegedly leaking to the Australian newspaper in 2005 reports which detailed massive security breaches at Sydney Airport. The author of the reports into the Sydney Airport was one Alan Kessing, convicted of leaking to the Australian newspaper reports which detailed these massive security breaches. Mr Kessing, I can assure you, did not leak material to the Australian newspaper. But Anthony Albanese has allowed Alan Kessing to be convicted of leaking to the Australian newspaper, and Mr Kessing now has a criminal record. The new Prime Minister has never opened his mouth. Alan Kessing says that Anthony Albanese's office not only accepted the material offered in 2005, but later on gratefully accepted more material. I should point out that Alan Kessing offered the material because the Howard government was doing nothing about security risks at Sydney Airport. Acting on the leaked information, which produced headlines in the Australian newspaper, Prime Minister Howard brought in a British expert to act upon the substance of the allegations. And as a result, airport security was overhauled at a cost of $200 million to the overwhelming benefit of the community. The most fundamental point is that the leaked material was accepted and given to Mr Albanese's office, never by Alan Kessing to the Australian newspaper. Someone else did that, but only two people had it, Albanese's office and Alan Kessing. Alan Kessing was right. Security was subsequently overhauled at Sydney Airport. But rather than being lauded a hero, Kessing was dragged through the courts at enormous financial and emotional cost. He had to fork out $150,000 in legal fees I explained all of this to the then Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, and urged that Mr Kessing be pardoned. But when he was being accused of leaking reports to the Australian newspaper, no one, the blokes in court being accused of this, no one, not Mr Albanese, came forward and said, hang on, hang on, Alan Kessing gave the reports to me in my office. He didn't give them to the Australian newspaper. We gave them to the Australian newspaper. Alan Kessing risked his job and his reputation in order to get information out to the public who rightly owns such material. But Alan Kessing lost both his job and his reputation, while the Labor Party even today jump up and down and say whistleblowers must be protected. Alan Kessing applied to the Labor government for a pardon in 2007. He did not get a response. So I'm saying to you, Anthony Albanese, given that Alan Kessing is still a criminal, shouldn't you reveal what information your office or you received in 2005 in relation to these reports on massive security breaches at Sydney Airport? Shouldn't you reveal on oath who gave the material to the Australian newspaper? Alan Kessing is a quiet and self-effacing man, bit of a recluse. He says simply that Mr Albanese's office not only accepted the material offered in 2005, but later on gratefully accepted more material. Mr Kessing did not leak it to the Australian. But today, Mr Kessing's a criminal with a suspended nine months sentence for something he didn't do. He did the nation a favour. He lost his job, his reputation and his income. The Australian Prime Minister has made comments about Julius Sands in opposition, but has done nothing in government. The Prime Minister has for years remained silent while a fellow Australian has been found to be a criminal for an offence he didn't commit. Mr Albanese owes it to Alan Kessing to now tell the truth. Prime Minister, take a lie detector test. Thomas Jefferson said, quote, the two enemies of the people are criminals and government. So let us tie the second down with the chains of the constitution. So the second will not become the legalised version of the first, unquote. Well, government and Mr Albanese stood by 
and watched a fellow Australian convicted as a criminal for an offence he didn't commit. It's not too late for Mr Albanese to speak up, or as Thomas Jefferson said, does government become the legalised version of the criminal? I've said it many times and I'll say it again. The Albanese government have hitched their wagon to two major policy issues. The voice, which will prove divisive and won't succeed. And 82% renewables by 2030. There is not a hope in the world of reaching that target. But as the world follows lemming-like towards this net zero, Europe faces, as one headline says today, a dark winter of discontent. Germany, where the departed Merkel went mad about renewable energy, is now vulnerable. That's scrambling for gas in Europe, but burning gas for energy does produce carbon dioxide. They're a pack of hypocrites. What do these politicians know except how to follow one another into this madness? Well, today, the Australian energy market operator, once comfortable about the shift from coal-fired generation, is now in its latest statement full of concern about the premature closing of coal-fired plants, delays in transmission projects, further delays in Snowy 2.0, which we talked about last week, and the lack of storage in the system. You could go on and on. But when the system fails, we will cop it. And while this crisis is upon us, thermal coal prices, thermal coal produces electricity, thermal coal prices have more than doubled since the start of this year. Australian mining producers have seen operating profits rise by more than 10 billion in the June quarter. Whitehaven shares have tripled in value this year. Why? Very simple answer, which I've warned about over and over again. It will take years before alternative energy sources are available to rebalance global supply and demand. But we continue to demonise coal-fired power, yet are happy to export the coal so that others can have cheap electricity. Liquid natural gas, those prices have also skyrocketed, but LNG is also a fossil fuel, albeit the cleanest fossil fuel. But gas prices are four times higher than a year ago. Russia is limiting supply. The so-called political leaders are running around like headless chooks. Their stupidity is being exposed. Prime Minister Albanese doesn't quite know where he is. He's telling the mining sector, it'll be the foundation for jobs and growth and we're going to become a renewable energy superpower. Who challenges him on this when he's talking to business? Do they just sit there and nod their heads, do they? He didn't mention the thermal coal industry, the maker of electricity, and a major employer in labour-held electorates in the New South Wales Hunter Valley. Well, one bloke who talks sense and has for years is the One Nation Queensland Senator Malcolm Roberts. Now, this bloke is no dunce, He'd run rings round most people who sit on the parliamentary benches. Firstly, he's from the bush. He's lived in the Hunter Valley and Brisbane. He graduated from the University of Queensland with honours as an engineer, but he decided he needed practical experience working as a coal-faced miner, mainly underground, for three years around Australia. He rose through the management ranks to lead and turn around underground coal mines, a coal processing plant, and he managed an ocean shiploader. He also has a master's degree in business administration from the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business, one of the world's most respected universities for finance and economies, economics. He's investigated global warming and climate change, analysed the data and exposed what he's called the corruption of the science. In fact, he has publicly argued that 10 senators and members in the last parliament have stated or shown in writing that they've never received logical scientific evidence proving that carbon dioxide from human activity causes climate change and therefore needs to be cut. And many Labor, Liberal and National Party members have privately confided to Malcolm Roberts that there is no scientific basis for their party's climate and energy policies, but they remain silent. The former CSIRO research scientist and federal MP Dennis Jensen, at the time the only scientist in the parliament, repeatedly argued his disgust with CSIRO's betrayal of climate science and the CSIRO evolving into an unscientific, politicised climate advocacy group. He was a Liberal MP from WA, Dennis Jensen, ignored by his party and he lost pre-selection because of his views. Senator Malcolm Roberts has argued that the Senate should reject the climate change bills due to the complete lack 
of cost-benefit analysis. Malcolm Roberts joins me. Malcolm Roberts, thank you for your time, thank you for your scholarship, and thank you for hang hanging in there. So basically you're telling us that there are people in the National Parliament meant to represent us who agree that they've seen no proof that carbon dioxide from human activity causes climate change, but they remain silent. The majority of them remain silent. And why? Because Dennis Johnson Denton got the boot from Parliament because he spoke up. But there are 10, if time permits later, I wouldn't mind mentioning the 10 who have written to me and said that they have never seen the evidence. 10 with guts and courage. Mm. Back in 2016, that's now six years ago, the father of the Senate then, Senator Ian MacDonald, stated in the Senate that you had started the debate on climate science that the Parliament had never had. Malcolm Roberts, that debate has never eventuated, has it? No, it has never eventuated. I've challenged Dean Natale when he was in the Senate and Larissa Waters and others in the Senate to provide me with the evidence and also to debate the science and the corruption of science. They have always run from me. They have never done it. Well, talking about Larissa Waters, Back in October 2010, you challenged Larissa Waters to debate the climate science and the corruption of climate science during a joint participation in a forum at Brisbane's powerhouse centres 12 years ago. She jumped to her feet and said she wouldn't debate you. Correct. You couldn't get her up quick enough. She was on her feet in a flash saying, I won't debate you. She re-emphasised it again later that evening. She said to me to my face, I will not debate you. And Mark, and Mark, Butler, Butler. And Mark Butler, who was Labor's yes. climate change spokesperson, he wouldn't debate you either. Well, I challenged Larissa Waters again in 2016 in May and also Mark Butler at a function in Brisbane and they both would not debate me. Absolutely. And I've challenged Larissa Waters since in the Senate, no, no debate. You wrote on the 24th of July last year to senators and members who had stated or implied that carbon dioxide from human activity needs to be cut. You asked them for logical scientific points as the basis for their claim. All of them, am I right to say, failed to provide any such points or evidence. So before I get your answer there, these people included Zali Stegall, Larissa Waters, Simon Birmingham, the wet from South Australia, waste of a Senate seat, Jenny McAllister, Penny Wong, Trent Zimmerman, Mark Butler, Scott Morrison, Barnaby Joyce, Anthony Albanese, Adam Bant, David Littleproud, Josh Frydenberg, Angus Taylor, Karen Andrews, Greg Hunt, Tony Burke, Tanya Plibersek, and what happened? Well, also Matt Canavan in there, but not one of them could provide me with the evidence. Only four out of the 19, Alan, responded. And they were hopeless, absolutely hopeless. Um, and it's in interesting to note that Jenny McAllister, one day in a conversation I had with her, she's from the Labor Party, she, she got to the Labor Party on a ticket to climate change. She was a, a what do you call it, a policy advisor. She, she's, she's spouted this rubbish. And that's been her reward to get into Parliament, and now she's pushing it. Stegall came to your office in 2021 last year, did she not, to try to persuade you to vote for her proposed climate change legislation. She couldn't provide any logical, scientific points showing the need for the bill. And when you asked her to provide such fundamental basis for the legislation, she was speechless. She just stared at me, didn't know what to say. Absolutely nothing. Hopeless, completely hopeless. And she's supposed to be a lawyer and knows evidence. Rubbish. Rubbish. You repeatedly asked the then Morrison government's Senate leader, Matthias Corman, for the logical <laughs> scientific points to support climate and energy policies. He couldn't answer your question. No, he said we, what we need to do is to fulfil our international agreements and obligations. So basically that's, that's the basis for the policy which is costing Australians billions of dollars and will cost trillions of dollars in jobs. Now you say no Australian federal, state or territory government has provided the scientific basis for a mandate to push, much less pass, legislation cutting the production of carbon dioxide from human activity. Correct. No agency, no foreign government, no UN entity, no one, no academic, no one. Zip, zero, zilch. You cross-examined the CSIRO and its chief scientist on climate science over many years and many hours. And during the CSIRO's presentation, did they not admit that they had never stated, the CSIRO, that they had never stated that carbon dioxide from human activity poses a danger? Correct. 
And then when we said, well, how come politicians are telling us that they, they rely on, on advice from CSIRO, they said, you better ask the politicians. Yeah, the danger came from politicians, not from us. But the yeah. CSIRO has never quantified any specific impact of carbon dioxide from human activity on any climate or any weather variable like temperature, rainfall, droughts, floods and storms. Nothing. Correct. And Alan, fundamental in any policy is to be able to tell me how much of what we're doing affects something else. If you can't do that, you haven't got a policy. If you can't do that, you can't do the cost benefit analysis. You can't cost the options. If you can't do that, you can't measure progress. We are going down a rabbit burrow that's got an alligator trap down the bottom of it. We are heading into disaster. Trillions of dollars. No doubt. Didn't CSIR admit that today's temperatures are not unprecedented? Yes, they did. They looked at me just a, a metre away from me on the table um, and the head of the CSIRO at the time, Climate Division, said they're not claiming that, that today's, today's temperatures are not unprecedented, not unprecedented. Mm. So CSIRO so were who relying... Caused them in the past? Yeah, they were relying on unvalidated, erroneous and discredited computer models. We asked them to provide the logical scientific points, which is empirical evidence, hard data within a framework, a scientific framework, logical framework that proves cause and effect. They failed repeatedly. We had three sessions with them, each of two and a half, three hours in length. They failed all three occasions and they couldn't provide us with the basic and what they ended up doing was giving us models, which we know, as you've correctly said, are erroneous and mm. unvalidated. And they admitted not doing, doing due diligence on data which was relied on from foreign external agencies. No due diligence. No due diligence on reports from external agencies. They just allowed politicians and journalists to misrepresent CSIRO without any correction. My God, they misled the parliament. Correct. Correct and correct. You've done your homework very well. well You're no, spot on. It's, 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 hey, this is all common sense, eh? I mean, there are internationally respected <laughs> scientists from six nations, including Australia, and covering many disciplines of climate science and climatology, and they confirmed, didn't they, that your conclusion that CSIRO has never presented logical scientific points needed as the basis of policy in science. Correct. 100% so, correct. So we've got a climate change bill. You've said the biggest change to Australian lives in Parliament that the parliament has ever considered. Correct, and I stand by that. Trillions of dollars we're looking at, Alan. And what's more, we're looking at a reverse Robin Hood. The poor are going to be paying a highly regressive impost burden to satisfy the rich. This is reverse Robin Hood. This is theft. It's fraud on a grand scale. It is fraud on a grand scale. Tell you what I do. We've run out of time. I'm sure our viewers want to hear more from you. So let's leave it there for now. I'll get you back next week and we'll go through that climate change bill and see what, in fact, we are not being told. But look, you're doing wonderful work, Malcolm Roberts, and thank you so much for sharing your scholarship with us. Thank you for having the guts and the integrity to do this, Alan. Not You're one all. of very few. Not, yeah, absolutely, I know that. I don't about guts and integrity, one of the very few. Well, you get cancelled, you see. You, get can you don't get cancelled here. We're not woke here. But for you viewers out there, there's a man. He's in the Senate. You may not have heard of him. From Queensland, Malcolm Roberts knows the scene backwards. We'll talk to him again next week. Now, what the hell is happening with taxpayers' money? Rachel Miller has admitted that she had an affair with the then Cabinet Minister Alan Tudge. As I understand it, she slept with him. Tudge stood down from the Morrison government's ministry because he denied the allegations of bullying and said that what Rochelle Miller was saying was wrong and didn't happen. As Tudge said, the allegations are, quote, contradicted by her own written words to me, unquote. Well, an inquiry was commissioned by the then Morrison government. It did not find sufficient evidence to substantiate allegations of inappropriate behaviour. Somewhere, Michaelia Cash, whom you heard here last night with Jake, Michaelia Cash was dragged into this because Rochelle Miller had worked for her. Trot out the workplace bullying stuff. But there was a second inquiry into the allegations against Cabinet Minister Tudge, conducted by one Vivian Tom, a former Inspector General of Intelligence, who found Tudge had not breached ministerial standards. The same Rochelle Miller refused to participate in that inquiry. Michaelia Cash strenuously rejects claims of any adverse treatment towards Miss Miller. Well, it's your money. There's now a deed of settlement, which the Commonwealth has reached with Rachel Miller's lawyers. $650,000 of your money. 
100,000 for Miller's loss of future earning capacity, 10,000 for past loss of earning capacity, 28,000 to reimburse past medical expenses, 62,000 for future medical expenses. What the hell is going on here? 300,000 for hurt, distress, humiliation, dislocation of life, loss of professional standing and impairment of personal dignity. The mind boggles. 150,000 for legal costs. Rochelle Miller worked for Alan Tudge for 15 months and Michaelia Cash for eight months. And the Commonwealth has reached an agreement with Miller's lawyers for $650,000 of your money. We deserve to be told more justify these amounts. I am sick to the back teeth of taxpayers' money being abused in this way, and you should be too. This same Alan Tudge was the one person who I believed understood the crisis in our education system. We currently have in Australia a bloke, Andras Schleicher. He's the Education and Skills Director for the OECD. No surprise when he tells us that new data reveals a million teenagers are on track to illiteracy over the next five years. Our teenagers are part of it. He said Australia is, quote, made learning often a mile wide, but just an inch deep. Well, this bloke oversees the biggest comparative school test, the OECD's Program for International Student Assessment. It's called PISA, P-I-S-A. And it has revealed this massive slide in achievement amongst Australian 15-year-olds. I mean, you see it every day. The assessment is of our 15-year-olds compared with students from 75 other industrial countries over the past decade. Since 2003, and Mark Latham and I have been talking about this for years, since 2003, Australian students have dropped from 11th place in maths to 29th, from 8th place in science to 15th, from 4th in literacy to 16th, and the most recent PISA test involving 14,000 Australian students in 2018, found one in five teenagers reads at the lowest of seven levels of proficiency. One in five. A level the OECD regards as, quote, too low to enable them to participate effectively and productively in life, unquote. Only 60% can read at, quote, a proficient standard. The data in these tests has been extrapolated to calculate that 800,000 Australian students have substandard literacy levels. We all know this. And that will soar to a million by 2028 unless they're given help to catch up with reading and writing. So parents, understand what this means. A million students out of just over 4 million who cannot read well enough to have a productive career and a full life. Those at the education coalface argue the so-called new national curriculum is, quote, impossible to teach, and that it's, quote, not high quality and not knowledge rich. Quote, it does not guarantee the knowledge that students are supposed to learn, unquote. We see evidence of that every day. This OEC Director of Education and Skills, Andras Schleicher, says correctly that top performing education systems, and I quote, Look at the realm of human knowledge, the realm of ethics and judgment, the realm of political and civic life, the realm of creativity, aesthetics, design, physical health, natural health and economic life, unquote. Well, we spend $116 billion a year and achieve none of that. Mr. Schleicher said what many of us know, successful countries in education use, and I quote, rigour, making sure that students are challenged in every moment of their learning. Forget it. Compared to those judgments, the Australian education system, as I've been saying over and over and over again, is an expensive joke. We are betraying good young people. Well, it's all happening in Britain. I don't think anyone can predict, though, what might come next. Boris Johnson was Boris Johnson. In his farewell speech in front of number 10, he pledged, and I quote, fervent support for Liz Truss and urged the Conservative Party to unite behind her. Johnson has a remarkable string of triumphs, by the way, and David and I, David Maddox and I have talked about this in the past, the biggest election victory since Margaret Thatcher. 
He survived coronavirus and then piloted the response. He's been the world leader in the support of Ukraine and standing up to Putin. And he secured what some said couldn't be done, the exit from the swamp of the European Union. Boris was uniquely Boris in departing. He was applauded by a large group of Tory MPs and officials as he approached the podium in Downing Street outside number 10. He compared himself to a booster rocket jetting off into distant lands. Quote, I'll now be gently re-entering the atmosphere and splashing down invisibly in some corner of the Pacific. Unquote. There are none like Boris Johnson. He then said, like Cincinnatus, I'm returning to my plough. Now, Cincinnatus was a legendary figure in the early Roman Republic, a statesman and a military leader. But trust Boris to know that, that Cincinnatus, but I think it was an important point here, he returned to his farm after retiring, but was called upon to lead again. Let's go to our Nostradamus, David Maddox. He hasn't got anything wrong during all of this discussion we've had. He's the political editor of The Express Online. You can keep up to date by reading David at express.co.uk and he writes superbly. Let's see if there are any parallels between Boris and Cincinnatus in the early Roman Republic, who, as I said, returned to Rome as a dictator to guide the Republic through a turbulent period of war. David, will Boris return? Is he Cincinnatus? Well, uh, that, that Cincinnatus reference has had a lot of tongues wagging because it's uh, which end of Cincinnatus's career are we talking about? Are we talking about the point where he was ditched because he lost an argument over the plebeians uh, and then was pleaded on to return to save the Republic? Uh, or are we talking about the point where he retired having saved the Republic? Yeah. You know, in 16 days, I should say. That's it. Was, it. Uh, quite extraordinary. Um, but... Uh, a lot of us suspect that it was the former, but actually he's hoping that at some point there's going to be a tap on the shoulder and say, Boris, mm. you know, you got the big decisions right. Uh, we need yeah. you. Yeah. Please come back. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and a fascinating and, uh, character. We need that kind of personality in politics, which is invariably so dull. But nonetheless, Liz Truss, she's got eye-watering debt of more than $2.3 trillion the highest in more than 50 years. Mm. This is most probably the most tumultuous period for Britain since Margaret Thatcher took charge of the late 1970s. The health system has been crippled by the pandemic. Average ambulance waiting times have blown out to nearly an hour. More than 130,000 positions in your health system are unfulfilled. Trace trust faces an economy that's forecast to go into a long recession. Inflation's hit a 40-year high. Immigration restrictions have limited Britain's access to cheap European labour, so there's a shortage of workers. David, is Liz Truss capable of writing the listing ship? This is the big question. And uh, if she's not, then she'll be the next in a, in a succession of Tory leaders to be rapidly dumped. Uh, I mean, we are we are now on our fourth Conservative Prime Minister in six years, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, you're right. It, it, it's uh, it's an enormous problem that she's facing. Frankly, I think most of it dates back to the pandemic. We're all trying to blame the Ukraine war, which certainly isn't helping. But, you know, all these waiting lists, yeah. the crippling yeah. of the health service, the, uh, of, uh, the actual lack of a workforce because so many people retired just decided to not bother to work again or to work part-time. Uh, or they took the, the free money. They took the free money. Yeah, took the free money and just like uh, loads of people. I mean, this is a, not a, a, a widely talked about story, but it's true in this country, and I think it's true in a lot of other Western countries. Lots of people in their 50s took the money and said, you know, I'm quite happy to just sit on this and, and not bother yeah, to work again. Or maybe do one or two days a week. Yeah. And it's really hit the workforce and uh, you know there's there's uh, so many vacancies no i mean it's it's uh, it's if she gets through this and wins an election in two years time she may well go down as uh, you know one of the all-time great conservative yeah. leaders but the thing it's, is it's, but, it's, 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 it's monumental yeah david this triumph i've said this to you off here before this trust triumph is amazing to me she was born of left-wing parents she once argued in her university mm. days at Oxford against the British monarchy. She attended anti-Thatcher mm. protests. She joined demonstrations mm. against nuclear weapons. She was president of the Oxford Uni University Liberal Democrats. 
She was a supporter of the Britain Stronger in Europe campaign. That is, she was a Remainer. She's got two daughters, but she admitted that from 2004 until mid-2005, she had an extra marital affair with a married MP, Mark Mm. Field, but the marriage survived. Mm. This is an amazing story. The woman's the leader of the Conservative Party and all that's out the window. Yeah, I mean, mean, it's extraordinary, actually. It's extraordinary. I mean, uh, when she started, when she was selected for uh, South West Norfolk, which is actually very close to where I grew up, and I knew these people uh, in the distant past, uh, they tried to deselect her because of that uh, extramarital affair. And uh, David Cameron, who was leader at the time, it was before he was prime minister, termed these people the turnip Taliban because it was from a kind of rural area. And uh, and, and it was meant to, you know, the other phrase he used was a right-wing nutjobs, which was how he considered the membership of the Conservative Party at the time. And it was a really kind of real problem. And she became symbolic of a modernisation of a party. And yet... 12 years on, or 14 years on, actually, she's suddenly the heir to Margaret Thatcher, literally dressing up like Margaret Thatcher and trying to sound like her. She's embraced the right wing of the party. The very turnip Taliban who wanted to get rid of her were now going and voting for her as their (laughs) champion. uh, That's right. You know, you couldn't make it up. You couldn't make it up, but then Penny Mordaunt, who almost beat Liz Truss in the Tory leadership contest, she's the leader of the House, but... Didn't Sir Ian Duncan Smith, a former leader, turn it down? He did. He did. And uh, But I think Ian Duncan Smith was hoping to be Deputy Prime Minister. Yeah. And uh, that's why he turned it down. Yeah. Uh, he, he pretty much, he intervened at a crucial point in the campaign when MPs were still voting. Yeah. Uh, he and a lot of the Brexiteers basically saved Truss's campaign. It was, it was going nowhere. Penny Mordaunt was going to beat her to the final two. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, but uh, I mean, the thing about Penny is that she's turned down at least two jobs that we know of, uh, one of which was a Northern Ireland secretary, which is a complete mess. She ended up having to go for a fifth or sixth choice for Northern Ireland secretary, which is actually a hugely important job, you know, in terms of keeping the country together and... Yeah, but, 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 and things. but it was a toxic relationship between Truss and Mordaunt, where allies of Liz, Liz mm. Truss were accused of briefing against Penny Mordaunt, claiming she was woke. Mm. Then Penny Mordaunt came out in support of Liz Truss, who was beaten on the parliamentary vote by Rishi Sunak, we should say that. And they actually this quasi Quateng, who's the only child of parents <laughs> who emigrated from Ghana, He's Chancellor. Hmm. He's not stupid. His mother's a barrister. His father's an economist. He read classics and history at Trinity College, Cambridge. He attended Harvard University on a Kennedy scholarship. He's got a PhD in economic history from Cambridge. So it's not such a bad appointment, is it? No, it's not. And uh, he's a very bright man, is Quasi. He was kept on the back benches for far too long. He didn't. He came in with Liz Truss in 2010 as a new MP. He didn't get a ministerial job until 2017. And he had a bit of an un- unfair reputation of being lazy. Uh, it's, it's not true. I mean, he, he's been a very good business secretary for, in Boris Johnson's government. But I mean, one thing about Quasi is that he has lots of side interests. So, you know, I've been out for lunch with him. He's not so keen to talk about his brief. Yes. Uh, as a minister, yes, nice. I'm much more keen to look about history and his yeah. history books of the latest. Nice touch, and nice like touch. That. Now you mentioned this yeah. before, Therese Coffey, 50 year old Therese Coffey. Where the hell has she come from? She's mm. been a member of parliament for 12 years. She was formerly the secretary of state for mm. work and pensions. How the hell does she become deputy prime minister? Well, you know, being best friends with the uh, new prime minister is is Helps. a good start. I Helps. mean, they're both. From the uh, from East Anglia, uh, of the East Anglian group of MPs, they've been close since 2010. Huh. Uh, they came in together, and uh, I mean it has been a remarkable rise because 
all the stories written about Therese Coffey in the last year have been how she's going to get sacked from the government That's for, being, right. Boris. Uh, for being mediocre or useless. Yeah. Uh, and now she's deputy prime minister in charge of a health service. Unbelievable. It's, it's a massive job. As well. Massive. Then you've got this James Cleverly, former Secretary of State for Education, but only a member of Parliament for seven years, born in London, but his mother is mm. from Sierra Leone. He's the new Foreign Secretary. Mm. So, David, the Prime Ministership, the Chancellor, the Foreign Secretary and the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, the top four jobs, not a white man amongst them. No, and but the brilliance of this is that none of that's intentional. There's no positive discrimination no, going on here. No. They are simply the people who are considered the best for the job mm. and have got uh, who have risen that far. And actually, it shows the long-term approach that the Conservatives took to this of just allowing talent to rise. Yeah, there's plenty of has, it. Has worked. There's plenty you of know, it. There. I mean, the, the comparison is with the Labor Party. Yeah. Labor Party is still yet to have a female leader. We're on our yeah. third Conservative yes. female Prime Minister. I always think yeah. in politics you've got to be able to use the cricket analogy back down to number six. And the Conservatives can certainly do yeah. that. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, now, he's to overhaul a revolution in energy policy. Uh, Truss has said she won't be scrapping the net zero goals. Now, is she going to take away the green levy that is used to pay for renewable projects, which would help reduce eye-watering energy bills, so that if she does that, she'll never get to net zero? I mean, one beats the other. Yeah, I, I think the real agenda here is that they're going to quietly drop net zero. She can't publicly Definitely. drop net zero because, Definitely. you know, so many international agreements and things, it, it's a huge statement. But what we're having is going to have temporary measures, temporary in inverted commas measures of things like dropping the green levy, postponing people having to, you know, have electric cars and, uh, you know, redo the heating in the houses mm. and things. Rubbish. That's what's going to happen. I mean, and it's, there's no doubt that you know climate change is now Jacob Rees-Mogg's uh, uh, brief, yeah. and he has a completely different. Let's put it like this: he's not Greta Thunberg. No, absolutely. I just thought the leaded grey skies and the rain, which welcomed Liz Truss mm. as Prime Minister, represented a bit of a metaphor of the future. We'll talk about it again next week, David. Always great to talk to you. We love your insights, says the bloke who knows this whole scene inside out. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Nostradamus. We'll well, see a you. Pleasure, Alan. We'll see you next week. There he is, David Maddox. <laughs> Daniel Andrews is apparently on track to win a third term for Labor in the Victorian election on November 26. However, it's not going to be straightforward. I never know the quality of Liberal Party research. They talk up a good story. The same mob thought Morrison could win the federal election. But they allegedly have quantitative research in key seats, showing Daniel Andrews is a drag on the Labor vote with a net approval of minus 15. Now, as you know, Melbourne was one of the world's most locked down cities. Surely the Liberals will capitalise on community concerns about hospitals and ambulance ramping and reliability and ditch the multi-billion dollar railway line between suburban Cheltenham in Melbourne's southeast and Box Hill in the east. Can Andrews seriously be on track to win a third term for Labor? I mentioned on Monday the appalling treatment of the courageous 28-year-old pregnant woman in Ballarat who was confronted by several police officers arrested in her home, as I said, pregnant, in front of two young children for the offence of incitement. And the behaviour of the police, Victorian police, was defended by Assistant Commissioner Cornelius, who was, quote, absolutely satisfied the officers acted appropriately, and Zoe Buller, had engaged in serious criminal behaviour. When the matter came before the Ballarat Magistrates Court, the Victoria Police withdrew the charges, proof that Andrews Police were doing things they never should have done. That is why we need a Royal Commission into the handling of the whole coronavirus catastrophe. But now the same Daniel Andrews is confronted with a report revealing that at least 33 people have died waiting for an ambulance in the past two years. One young man who reported that his father died on his front lawn in January, waiting 40 minutes for an ambulance, said, I hope Daniel Andrews and Attorney General Jacqueline Symes are held responsible and accountable for what they've done. If we had got an ambulance straight away, there's a very good chance Dad would still have been here, unquote. This is coronavirus. There's an admission 
that the emergency services, telecommunications authority, didn't have enough call takers at the peak of coronavirus. So in 2021, most triple zero calls were not answered within the target of five seconds. One caller in January this year waited 76 minutes. 33 people died. I see the United Firefighters Union boss, Peter Marshall, has called for Daniel Andrews to publicly respond to the fact that 33 Victorians lost their lives after waiting too long for ambulances. But the Victorian Premier is strangely silent. So it seems is the opposition. Andrews did make social media posts about wind farms, Father's Day, and a contest to choose Victoria's best train station, but silent about the Inspector General's report on the 33 deaths. Well, here's something that you don't know about the Daniel Andrews government. You will remember, though I'm sure you will soon forget, the pylon re Scott Morrison appointing himself to five portfolios. Though he didn't breach any convention, his mistake in my mind was keeping things secret. But not a word about the Andrews government. Listen to this, passing legislation to create a third chamber of parliament with the Orwellian name Aboriginal representative body and its stepchild, the Treaty Authority. These will, under legislation, negotiate treaties between the Victorian government and Aboriginals. It was Neil Brown, the former deputy federal leader of the Liberal Party under John Howard, who first pointed this out. This is the first time a parliament has legislated for racism, not to abolish it, but to establish it, encourage it. These two bodies are clearly racist because, as Neil Brown pointed out, and he's a lawyer by trade, the electoral role and the qualification for standing as a candidate for election can be reached only by members of one race, the Aboriginal race. All other races are excluded. And the function of these two bodies, the Aboriginal representative body and the treaty authority, is to confer benefits and privileges on the members of one race, but not of any other race and to compel compliance by all other Victorians with the race laws. Non-Aboriginals in Victoria won't have a statement from the heart. They won't be given a voice to air their grievances before, uh, for being excluded from the alleged benefits and money provided by these new laws. This is, as Neil Brown rightly says, a permanent constitutional wreckage being foisted on Victorians by the Andrews government, and I suppose other states are keen to follow. We now have a federal government with its racist proposals for The Voice. Who is challenging this Victorian legislation? Or are we to waste our time on the Scott Morrison issue? The Victorian legislation expressly prohibits any ministerial supervision of the millions of dollars the Aboriginal House of Parliament will control and the unlimited power that it and the treaty authority will wield. Indeed, the Labor left are gloating that the law is expressly written so that there's no ministerial power over their true creation. A treaty authority which will bargain away the rights of non-Aboriginals is, quote, truly independent. Neil Brown reports that it has the power to act anywhere in the world, and specifically outside Australia, appearing at United Nations human rights inquiries, and it'll get 20 million for every financial year after 2025-26. It's not answerable to a minister, and its members and employees will have immunity from liability. Does Andrews get re-elected with this baggage around his neck? And where is the Liberal opposition marching in the streets to explain this travesty and promise to overturn this legislation in defence of non-Aboriginal Victorians? Or is the opposition frightened to oppose? Well, before we go, if there's one way to sum up the Australian economy in a single sentence, It'd have to be this, I'll quote it. In Australia, we sell our goods at wholesale prices to the Chinese who refine them, and then we buy the final products back at retail prices set by them. You see, Australia's failing steel industry is the perfect example. The numbers should make you irate. In this country, we sell 70% of the world's seaborne steel-making materials. That's 70% of the world's iron ore and coking coal that are transported via ships to make steel. And yet we are a net importer of steel. We only produce 0.3% of the world's steel. 
In fact, Australia, once a great steelmaking nation, now produces less steel than the Belgians, the Austrians, the Egyptians, the Dutch and the South Africans, thanks to a decrease in our steel output of 45% over the last 15 years. The worst part? The Chinese Communist Party now produces 57% of the world's steel supply with the raw materials we have sent them. And using their abundance of coal-fired power, China has become the world's undisputed factory and industrial power. Well, there's a solution to this mess. It's called Project Iron Boomerang. Bear with me on this one. It's worth it. Project Iron Boomerang calls for a 3,300 kilometre transcontinental railroad connecting the iron ore region of the Pilbara in Western Australia to the Bowen Basin coal fields in central Queensland. Now, the essence of this project is that iron ore from WA would be transported from west to east and those carriages would then be backloaded with coal in Queensland to transport the coal to WA, hence the boomerang name. Steel blast furnaces and steel parks at both ends in the Bowen Basin of Queensland and the Pilbara in Western Australia would then turn the iron ore and coal into steel slabs for export from Port Hendland in WA and from Abbott Point and the Port of Gladstone in Queensland. So in a nutshell, Australia will be value adding our two largest exports, iron ore and coal, instead of sending the dirt to the Chinese for value adding, processing and refining. The kicker? Well, believe it or not, it looks like the Albanese government is considering backing the project. On Monday night, the Senate passed a motion by the One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts, from whom you've just heard, on the climate change bills. His motion was to establish an inquiry into Project Iron Boomerang. Now, although it received support from both sides of the aisle, there was one speech on the motion that stood out, and it came from the Labor Senator, Glenn Stirl. Senator Stirl said, and I quote, I want to support this. I know the Labor Party and the Albanese government support you, Senator Roberts, for bringing this to us. I think it's a magnificent thing. And I also think this is what we should be doing. Let's try and put these two great industries together. Iron ore in my state of WA and coal in your state of Queensland. It just makes too much sense, unquote. Well, there you have it. Just amazing. One Nation and Labor hopefully working together on an ambitious nation-building infrastructure project that will make Australia a steel superpower. Exciting and inspiring stuff. We'll keep you updated. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8pm. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.